modernization of the Department of Defense is a matter of some urgency. In fact, it could be said that it's a matter of life and death. My 03 budget calls for more than $48 billion in new defense spending. Our country is in a state of mourning. Think through the implications of our actions today. But we must do more. We must develop and build weapons to deter those new threats. everything and everyone, including Socrates, who questioned everything. Question God and his buddies on Earth. Be subversive, constantly questioning reality and the status quo. Strive to change the world in such a way that there's no further need to be a dissident. say that something is a product of its time. I asked this question at the beginning of last season, and I'll probably ask it again when we start the next. Because millions of people from millions of backgrounds with millions of shifting perspectives will never come up with an adequate answer. Referring to something as a product of a time implies a linear cause and effect, which on the surface is certainly the case. Stuff happens before a thing gets made, and then the thing gets made. And that's that. A to B. The inputs result in the output. But why, then, are all things not referred to as products of their time? Just two years after the seven issues of Justice League that were the focus of the first season of this podcast, Grant Morrison and Chaz Traug began for DC a still-revered 26-issue run of comics featuring the D-list superhero, Animal Man. While Booster Gold and Blue Beetle in the Justice League were, just a few issues after the ones we talked about, hatching get-rich-quick schemes with colonial overtones in a vaguely Polynesian tourist trap, and local shit-stained kids were blackmailing Mr. Miracle's wife Big Barda for a cut of Mr. Miracle merchandising profits, Buddy Baker, aka Animal Man, was exploring violence and loss in storytelling, the interplay of consciousness, physics, and recursive history on the very medium of the comic book, and even the perhaps dubious ethics of a superhero eating meat. With even this one example, 
it's apparent that its time has only a relative bearing on the it in question. Conventions in art, or more broadly, presentation or meaning, might be similar, but often that's the end of the overlap. So then, we have the it to be acted upon by the time. But what defines the time that is doing the acting? We have a word for this, of course. It's history. But is it really that simple? And here I'm begging you not to picture a lava lamp lit dorm room when I ask this, but what is history? Let's apply a materialist critique for a minute. That is, we need to do away with our assumptions about history in two ways. First, things aren't the way they are just because. In reality, events and circumstances throughout time have been shaped almost entirely by the way humans have organized around producing the things we need to live and thrive. Summer and winter go by, but the water has to be pumped and the fire lighted. Products of their time. Get it? Power for control of this production and the resources involved constantly shifts within and among the groups who are doing the producing and those who benefit most from it. And right now, there's not a lot of overlap between those two distinctions. Second, and consequently, we need to recognize that the way we organize this production dictates our very understanding of these past events and circumstances. In the U.S. at least, history is taught in schools that must adhere to guidelines administered by the government. These schools must purchase history textbooks from only a small pool of publishers, all of which are controlled by a handful of people who very much benefit from the continuation of the way the U.S. society currently organizes its production. Think about it for two seconds. These publishers make a lot of money dollars because they have lucrative government contracts, and it's legal for them to underpay the people who actually print the books and put them together. Under no circumstances would someone with millions or billions of money dollars use those money dollars to publish books that would make people begin to question why these publishers were allowed to accumulate that amount of money dollars or establish that power in the first place. Thus is history, quote, written by the victors. It's not a moral judgment. It's an analysis of the reality of the situation and the material forces that brought it about. I'd like to clarify, too, that the phrase written by the victor neglects to consider that oppressed peoples still write and keep their own histories, and frankly, those are usually more accurate because they don't have to whitewash and justify the atrocities that the victors committed to become the victors. This victor's history doesn't just apply to academic texts or explicit propaganda. In a society in which production is controlled by a handful of owners, it's very rare indeed for a piece of media that is explicitly anti that sort of system to be produced, let alone distributed or publicized. Comic books are no exception. The comic book for this season is especially no exception. Mark Miller's The Ultimates represents the knife edge, the capstone of the pyramid of the United States' attitudes towards control. An unelected, unaccountable handful of powerful individuals are sanctioned by an imperial state hell-bent on expanding its power to subjugate. Using a sleight of hand that reaches far beyond comics, 
This book performs a task that, on the surface, contradicts itself. It obscures the violence of empire by celebrating the monsters who commit it. What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Last season, I laid a foundation for understanding how the capital class has accumulated, still accumulates, and will continue to accumulate economic power. In the era of a callous and conniving Justice League, truly evil forces were solidifying in the real world. The mechanisms by which they accomplished near-total domination are, as you might imagine, quite complicated. But it boils down to three key points. One, world governments led by the United States and the United Kingdom rapidly and almost completely removed any sort of regulations and constraints on large industry. Companies that were once forced by law to provide worker protection or to minimize environmental impact are now no longer held to those constraints. Without these costs, businesses began to see skyrocketing profit. This brings us to the second key point. This extra cash did not go to the workers actually making the products or doing the labor. It went straight to the pockets of shareholders and executives. This happened, and to be absolutely clear, is still happening and is now even worse than ever, because then US President Ronald Reagan and then UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher undermined the power of workers' unions through campaigns of privatization, media blitzes that justified the breaking of strikes and unions, and even direct presidential-level firings of workers. Without strong unions to protect them from exploitation, workers in the US and the UK have seen their paychecks shrivel. Far from being a mistake in need of fixing, this was an inevitability. In a capitalist economy, it's not just a matter of companies choosing to pay workers as little as possible. Companies must pay workers as little as possible in order to remain profitable enough for their shareholders' continued loyalty, or to be able to afford to expand and dominate markets before another company does. Finally, because a capitalist economy relies on making profit, which is quite literally stealing part or all of the value of a product created by the workers, the class of people who benefit from this economy must protect it from those who are being exploited by it. This is the function of the police, the militarized enforcement of laws designed to protect property over people. More specifically, private property over people, and even over people's personal property. Speaking from experience, it's more likely that the local Toyota dealership will get a stolen catalytic converter back than you will 
Police are used to break strikes. Police are used to put down protests and even protesters. Police are used to cultivate and harvest a veritable slave population of workers for the US prison system. This is not hyperbole. This is the 13th Amendment. This is what the police as an institution was almost explicitly designed to do. And Reagan gave them military-grade equipment via the Military Cooperation with Civilian Law Enforcement Agencies Act. That, combined with the hand-me-down nature of the 1033 surplus program, has resulted in an American police force that has a budget larger than every military on Earth, save two. The US, of course, and China. All this simply to keep profits high for the already rich. Which, of course, means taking money from you. Yes, you, the listeners right now, each and every one of you. Thus, we have the salient actions that have steadily siphoned economic power from the poor, you, to the rich, not you, for the past 40 years. To illustrate this, we reflected upon seven issues of a comic book that represented, with admittedly varying degrees of closeness, the shift in the American psyche as it began to process this change. We're going to do something similar here, but this time we're modernizing it a bit, and more importantly, we're internationalizing it. This time we'll be looking at Mark Miller's 2002 comic, The Ultimates, which, for those of you who aren't familiar, is an updated origin story for Marvel's equivalent of the Justice League, the Avengers. It unofficially served as the foundation for the eventual Marvel Cinematic Universe, even stylizing a couple of the characters to resemble actors that would later play them on screen. Most notably, this was the first time that Nick Fury, the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., was drawn as a bald black man. And S.H.I.E.L.D. is an international but really mostly American paramilitary organization with ubiquitous funding and a dubious charter. The lineup consists of the classic characters that 90% of the world is now familiar with thanks to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But for the 10% of you who are wise or lucky enough to not be bombarded with mainstream American pop culture 24-7, here's a quick rundown. While it's hard to claim that any one character is more important than the others in this roster, it's easy to understand why someone would start with Iron Man, also known as billionaire gadabout Tony Stark. I'll keep it brief because it should be apparent to anyone listening to a communist podcast about superheroes what sort of critiques and criticisms we could make about Tony Stark, but suffice it to say that he inherited Stark Industries from his father, who put the company on the map by profiting off the weapons boom during World War II. Now he spends billions of dollars creating personal weapons of war in the form of his Iron Man armor, the standard model of which includes tech that allows the armor to fly, deflect projectiles and energy, fire missiles and lasers, you know, normal things for someone whose entire portfolio is stolen from the labor of masses of underpaid employees. Next on the list would have to be the main man himself, the symbol of gumption and individual effort, the star-spangled status quo, Captain America. Steve Rogers was a scrawny nerd who hated Nazis, which is a way to be that I absolutely identify with. The similarities stopped there though, 
because he trusted his government enough to let them experiment on him and turn him into a killing machine with super reinforced muscles and a credulity to match. After this first issue, we'll see the captain as he's meant to be, a huge anachronism with a boyish charm and old school values cast adrift in a modern world he's almost wholly alien to. Since we have no real order to this, I'll just go ahead and bring up my favorite Marvel character ever, Dr. Bruce Banner, the Hulk. Although the Hulk is a nearly uncontrollable engine of destruction, made manifest by the repressed rage of a white man whose career was built in the US weapons industry, there are some surprisingly left-wing takes on the character. But that's not why I love him. I honestly can't tell you why. I just do. Maybe it's because, unlike most superheroes, he's not a cop. He just wants to be left alone. In the very first Avengers comic from the 60s, the trickster god Loki fools Thor, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Hawkeye and Iron Man into believing that the Hulk has gone on a murderous rampage. As a callback to that, this Hulk is the catalyst that brings the team together. However, this time, that's true on multiple levels and for multiple reasons. We'll get into that though as I unravel the story. Next up, we have Hank Pym, alternately known as Giant Man or Ant-Man. Pym, along with Bruce Banner, is canonically one of the eight smartest men on the planet. Of course, here, he's a big doofus and I hate him a lot, but we'll come to that later too. Using the power of the Pym particles that he's discovered, he's able to shrink to the size of a ant while maintaining the strength of an human, or grow to nearly 60 feet tall while gaining a strength that's actually relative to his size. How convenient. Just like last time, there's basically only one woman on the team, and certainly no trans or non-binary people, God forbid, Janet Pym, the Wasp. She's able to alter her size in similar ways to her husband's, although she never becomes giant. Unlike her husband, she also has wings and the innate ability to generate a small jolt of energy that she can sting people with in much the same way as, say, a wasp would. This version of Janet Pym, though, is unique. She has a secret, and that secret will be used against her. Sometime around issue four, we're introduced to another bright star you're all probably familiar with, Thor, the Norse god of thunder. This Thor, however, might not be as classic as the one you're likely envisioning. This one's a bit of an anomaly. It's almost ironic that this version of the son of the king of the gods greets the audience with a philosophy akin to, well, mine. But don't worry. All that goes out the window pretty fucking fast. There are other, more secondary characters, some of whom are even officially part of the team, but they play such a minor role that I'll save their introductions for closer to when they appear. Let's talk about this season's writer. Some of you may be a little more familiar with him than you were with Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus from last season. Depending on your point of view, this may be a blessing, but I consider it merely the other side of the damnation coin. Miller has been described as, quote, one of the comic industry's great hyperbolists. What would you say if I told you this happens to me regularly, sometimes as often as every other week? I'd say you were sensitive or exaggerating, 
Apart from this comic, his other famous works include Kick-Ass, a story about a normal teenager who decides to become a superhero and gets caught up in an organized crime ring. Old Man Logan, a dystopian future story about the X-Men mainstay Wolverine that was pretty much the inspiration for the final Hugh Jackman Wolverine movie. Superman, Red Sun, a hypothetical Cold War tale about a history in which the infant who would be Superman's rocket lands in the USSR instead of in the United States. And possibly most recognizable of all, thanks again to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Civil War. A convoluted blowout between superheroes who thought it was a good idea to register themselves as government agents and superheroes who were smart and normal. Listen. The concept of competency defies solidity when it comes to fiction writing. It's fluid and nebulous at the best of times. And the fact that a comic book writer creates with an artist and indeed relies as heavily on them as the audience does muddies the water even further. So it's hard to claim that Miller is a more competent writer or storyteller than Giffen and DeMatteis. For my money, however, I will admit that Miller engages me a little more as a reader. Much like with film writing and film editing, the production of comic books has matured. Over the decades, it has established and learned from all sorts of techniques to hold a reader's attention. There's even a historical and materialist critique we can make for this, but I'm keeping that one in the back pocket for now. Miller has the advantage of being a recipient of more of that ever-growing, ever-adding wisdom, and of the material changes to the comic book industry. There are places where Miller shines. It has been argued that his true talent lies in deconstructing any given superhero and focusing on what makes them interesting and unique. For example, in his very first contribution to DC's Superman Adventures, and indeed one of his earliest works for DC, Miller sets up the overused first appearance story that Superman is too often subjected to, in which Superman must gain control of a plummeting aircraft before it crashes somewhere in Metropolis. You saw it in the movie, we've seen it in the cartoons, it's in the comics all the time. The twist on this one, however, is that when Superman's alter ego Clark Kent tries to fly out the window mid-costume change, he himself barrels downward toward Earth, apparently powerless and in shock, only to be saved by Superman. Now, instead of us, the audience, or Metropolis at large, it's Clark Kent witnessing the first appearance of Superman. Eventually, it's revealed that all this is the work of the fifth-dimensional sorcerer imp Mixius Pitlick in his eternal quest to annoy the shit out of Superman. And whatever, it's fine. However, this simple identity twist subverts the reader's expectations, yet reinforces the essential duality of Superman by pitting Clark against his own secret identity. This duality is Superman at his most mythological, thus at his most recognizable. Why everybody in the territory knows that outfit. And it shows that Miller understands that. What Mark Miller doesn't seem to understand is the concept of realism. In multiple interviews, Miller harps on his idea of the term. Particularly, one can piece together that, to Miller, realism 
truly just equates to change. He has often praised comic book events that reset or reinvent characters and stories and even whole fictional universes. Now, certainly nothing in the real world is static and unchanging, nothing human at least. But there are so many features that define and denote what is and isn't realistic that change, while universal, barely merits a mention. All this hot goss about Miller begins to make sense when you consider the book I'll be using for this season, The Ultimates. Let's talk about that. The Ultimates is, surprise surprise, part of the Ultimate Marvel Universe. This universe was slated as a complete reimagining, without straying too far from the originals, of the most historically popular Marvel titles. It didn't use a massive world-ending event, nor any sort of magical memory-wiping trickery to do this. The Ultimate Marvel books simply started at number one and ran alongside books with the same characters that had been going for 40-plus years. For example, Ultimate X-Men number one came out the same month that Uncanny X-Men number 377 did. This new line of stories had a dual purpose. The first was to snare new prospective readers who would otherwise have been deterred by all the backstory and seeming complexity that was inherent to decades of publication. Think of someone who had just seen the first Thor movie and wants to go right out and buy a Thor comic. Which one are they gonna grab? Thor number 600 and something? Or the one on the shelf right next to it, Thor number one? It's a no-brainer. The second purpose was a little more self-contradictory. In the process of resetting the Marvel Universe, the Ultimate Marvel stuff tried to play to two disparate audiences. On one hand, the Ultimate storylines were made to be more adult and more related to, quote, real-world adult culture. And now I have to point out that I do mean adult Western culture, and I don't by any stretch of the imagination mean to imply that all culture is captured by or represented in these pages. Because God help us if it actually was. On the other hand, they undermined this adult realism by the very fact that such a huge reset of the universe, indeed a return to what made Marvel a hit with its initial audience, the kids, means that multiple mega-popular characters had to be regressed to their original teenage selves since that was how they were first presented and marketed. Clearly, we can see the contradiction. Books that are meant to have more adult themes are also now featuring decidedly not adult characters. We could be here all day arguing whether or not the Ultimate Universe overcame this dichotomy, and frankly, that's sort of a matter of personal taste. Regardless of your own enjoyment of the Ultimate Marvel Universe, this clash of concepts resonates with that which is the very essence of Mark Miller. Adolescence brute-forced into a framework of maturity. In sort of a roundabout way, Miller himself has described his work as having hyperviolence and being unpleasant. Miller's The Ultimates has been described as an almost anti-comic because of its heterodoxical approach to what makes a superhero team and indeed a superhero story. This is bullshit, but I won't waste your time with why. Suffice to say that Watchmen didn't walk so that the Ultimates could run. 
and if teammates squabbling amounted to a subversion of the genre, the Justice League comic from last season would have buried comic books as an industry. We'll be talking about Miller throughout the series, of course. But before we move away from him, let's learn a little bit about his politics. Miller has described himself as, quote, traditionally left of center and progressive. The hazy qualifier of traditionally aside, I would venture to guess that he's missing one key detail here, a political point of reference. Where is this center? But really, is there a center? We often hear politics described as left versus right. I'm certainly guilty of relying on both terms for their soft landing, and I'm going to continue to use them. This obscures, though, the structural and material realities of power. Politics is not left and right. Politics is about a vertical versus a horizontal distribution of power. Vertical here means fewer and fewer people have all the money and thus the power, while horizontal reflects that it's more evenly dispersed. The agreed-upon meaning of left-wing pursues the horizontal, while what we all understand to be right-wing pursues, and these days enforces, the vertical. Structural power, as it stands, is top-down. In the eyes of our current leadership, the fewer people with power, the better. There is no meaningful political challenge to this structure at the moment in the U.S. In the American politics that are fit for television, there is no left wing. So, if there is no American left wing, then what does it mean to be liberal? liberal, liberal, liberal. To be kind, it means believing that you support such noble efforts as the struggle for LGBT plus rights. It means that you believe that racism shouldn't exist. To be purely descriptive, it means that you encourage a free market and the near unlimited expansion of business with maybe some union power here and there. To be callous, it means that you have no way of effectively pursuing your lofty social goals specifically because of the economic principles you support. It means not understanding that the economic system in place is what leads to the very discrimination you profess to be against. Liberal is merely a historical descriptor for a certain type of capitalist, and both the conservative and the liberal arms of the U.S. political machine are historically liberal. So, regardless of intent, a person who is liberal, or even a liberal, operates under the mistaken assumption that capitalism is good, or at the very least, neutral and inevitable. Giffen and DeMatteis, with their anti-Reagan and anti-communist leanings, are most certainly liberals. And you can bet your boots and tights that Miller thinks of himself that way, too. As we'll see later, Miller has no problem representing George W. Bush in unflattering ways. Yet, he never seems to question the supreme right of the United States to put together an internationally focused, super-powered paramilitary drawn almost exclusively from weapons contractors and die-hard soldiers. Speaking of paramilitary operations, 
I think it's time we step outside the four-color print world for a second and talk about what was happening in the real world around the time of this comic. The original run of The Ultimates, issues 1 through 13, ran from January 2002 to April 2004. Pretty sure we're all familiar with what happened in New York four months before it premiered. Following the attacks on September 11th, then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld described the U.S.'s updated approach to foreign policy as, quote, forward-leaning. What he meant was that the Bush administration used the terror created by the chaos of 9-11 to justify using military intervention in every part of the world to advance U.S. political and economic interests. This is bolstered by its beating, bloody heart, the so-called Bush Doctrine. The idea that the U.S. has an unimpeachable right and obligation to overthrow governments anywhere on the planet. The U.S. government leaned forward hard and immediately. Fifteen days after the towers fell, the CIA was in Afghanistan in the form of a team codenamed Jawbreaker, looking for potential airstrike targets, among other unsavory activities. On October 7th, U.S. planes bombed 31 targets, and some operator somewhere committed the first ever predator drone strike bombing that would become a staple of the Obama presidency. If it surprises you that a Democrat like Obama would continue a policy enacted by a Republican like Bush, perhaps you should consider that the Bush doctrine was truly just an amplification of the intervention policies of the Clinton administration. Clinton and Gore blew previous administrations out of the water in terms of how often they sent troops overseas to murder people. Prior to their seven-week bombing of Yugoslavia, the Clinton administration deployed troops to kill foreigners 46 times. This was 20 more times than Ford, Carter, Reagan, and Bush combined. You may not remember this particular warmongeriness of the Clinton years because it was characterized heavily as humanitarian, which is essentially an updated phrasing of the anti-communist intervention rhetoric from the Cold War. Maybe, you know, I will, you know, I, when I raised my right hand when I came in the military, I said I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. With great military action and budget, there must also come great justification for it. The Pentagon on the record will more than likely deny that bin Laden is on the target list for this first volley of airstrikes. And as our military experts have been stressing and will stress throughout this day and evening, this is so carefully planned and coordinated. Don't assume the worst. Assume that what we're dealing with is some kind of threat that was made that we have to respond to and we have to respond to with a little bit more uh, attention and maybe more seriously than we would in the past. 
And even if the U.S. does these airdrops with food, there's a big question as to whether they will get to those people or not. They say that they are worried that the Taliban will simply steal those stores, take that food, and use it for its own army. For many of you, the public relations push surrounding the invasion of Afghanistan and eventually the invasion of Iraq was your first sense of corporate media's complicity in America's sociopathic need to dominate and expand. As we'll see throughout this season, the American public was to be inundated with articles, opinions, and think pieces from, quote, respectable outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and various cable news channels, all presenting measured and thoughtful arguments for why America was well within its rights to basically obliterate every living thing on the planet. As you can probably guess, this had no small effect on pop culture as well. It's why we're here, after all. There's one key difference between the classic Avengers and the Ultimates that almost never gets brought up, and certainly never gets explored. The Avengers, for all the criticism we can level at them, were ostensibly independent, not bound to the agenda of any nation, state, or powerful interest. The Ultimates have no such freedom, and given the amount of pro-America and pro-war propaganda at the time, it's easy to imagine why. As Miller himself points out in an interview with New Empress magazine, it was his decision to absorb the characters into the S.H.I.E.L.D. apparatus under the command of Nick Fury, in his effort to make the flailing team book more appealing to mainstream audiences. This reminds me of a William Bloom quote from his 2014 book, America's Deadliest Export, Democracy. Quote, if fed American exceptionalism junk food long enough, an audience comes to feel at home with it. So, now we begin to see where this comic book fits into the rabid pro-war and pro-Eurocentric maelstrom that was, apparently, the world just after 9-11. And as this piece slides into the puzzle, we can see a larger picture of a country that has spent more than a century interfering with the rightful development of other groups of human beings all around the world. Hell, we've interfered with their right to develop. This is a podcast about that interference and the goals of expansion and control that drive it. A podcast about empire. This is a comic book about a group of superheroes who fictitiously enact and enforce those imperial imperatives and whose very existence justifies the actions of the forces who pursue those goals in the real world. And with all that, I guess it's time we really get into it, huh? Issue number one is a bit of an outlier. It takes place during the raid of a Nazi fortress in World War II and introduces only Captain America, which makes sense since he was the only one alive back then. With maybe the exception of Thor. Hard to say in this incarnation. The issue opens with a full page dedicated to illustrating the might of the US Air Force. I have no idea how accurately the many planes are drawn, but the message is clear even without the caption. It's late in the Second World War, the U.S. is engaging in some sort of covert mission, and it's one worth diverting particular amounts of resources to. 
we cut to the inside of one of the aircraft to find that tried and true modern writing technique in action, a mundane yet pointed conversation. Bucky Barnes, the teenage sidekick of Captain America, laments over a French cigarette that the Germans shot down a plane full of American ones. We learn from the dour chit-chat aboard that those same Germans are building some sort of super weapon that could end the war in days. One soldier opines, in so many words, that the brass in Washington are pulling a Zap Brannigan and hurling as many bodies at the enemy as possible to prevent the completion of this project. Bucky reminds his compatriots that the US, in fact, already has a super weapon. And if you know anything about comics, you can probably guess what or rather who he's referring to. Of course, even if you don't know anything about comics and can't guess what or rather who that is, Miller makes sure that you can by the next panel by having the first soldier clumsily berate Bucky for believing Captain America to be anything more than a circus-garbed recruitment tool. Were this one of those mockumentary shows like Parks and Rec or uh, What We Do in the Shadows, the camera would immediately pull back to reveal an awkward Captain America standing right next to the complaining soldier. But it's not, so instead we have a calm and composed Captain America, half-lit to prepare us for the impending big reveal. He assures the men that he's never lost a crew in three years of similar covert operations, and even invites them to his upcoming wedding. He announces there's one minute to the drop set. When he's questioned about not wearing a parachute, he apparently leaves Bucky to deliver a joke that's going to very much embody the puerile nature of this whole book. That Captain America says parachutes are for girls. So, just how dated is Captain America? Joe Simon created the character in 1940, and comics powerhouse Jack Kirby, whom you've all heard credit Superman with saving his life in the show's theme song, drew his first appearance in Timely Comics' Captain America No. 1, which sported a cover date of 1941. Now, Timely Comics might not be familiar to most of you, and there's really no reason that it should be. It underwent an aggressive rebranding, culminating in its being renamed Marvel Comics in 1961. There's something interesting to note about Timely Comics headquarters in New York, and I think we'll find a lot of inadvertent meaning here. In 1941, when Captain America first hit the scene, Timely Comics was headquartered in the McGraw-Hill building on 42nd Street. The facade of the building is blue-green terracotta with numerous setbacks, designed that way specifically to blend in with the surrounding sky regardless of weather conditions. This is fitting for a nascent pulp publisher trying to find its feet by glomming on to current trends and both self-consciously and self-referentially reflecting the state of the world in which it's published. You know, really, this could be argued to characterize the very thing that sets Marvel apart from its chief competitor, DC. To many fans and critics and writers, DC, with its modern gods that are Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and certain Justice Leagues, is the beacon-like monolith that towers above us and illuminates the righteous path that draws us to it. 
The workaday, street-level, wonder-filled world of Marvel, however, firmly happens around us. The characters live in New York or Los Angeles instead of Gotham or Metropolis. Spider-Man has to make rent. The X-Men have homework and crushes. Much like the McGraw-Hill building where it was born, Marvel cements its image by entrenching itself in the cracks and the seams of our everyday lives. You look up in the sky, and you don't just see Marvel. You see nothing out of the ordinary. But back to the comic. The next two pages are art only. Straight up, no dialogue. Beneath a caption informing us that they're over Iceland, we see all the planes from the opening page dropping a huge number of troops. They land around an incredibly advanced looking fortress for 1945. And that's actually a story point later, I'm not just making fun of the book here. And proceed to storm the place. After a few panels that might as well have been taken from Saving Private Ryan, we find that Captain America has assumed command of the plane he was meant to jump from and is circling to find the perfect spot to leap into battle. He radios Bucky to relay that he's just learned that the rocket the Nazis have built is aimed straight at the White House. And man, if only it hadn't been the Nazis doing that, I myself might have looked the other way. Cap then crashes the plane he's flying into the Nazi fortress. Can't imagine where Mark Miller got that idea. And after Bucky explains to Cap's detractor from earlier that Cap used to be a stupid nerd who got his ass beat all the time, we're finally rewarded with the full page reveal of Captain America. Making yet another super funny joke by calling all the less suicidally reckless soldiers ladies. Cap then leads the allied troops in a full-scale assault on the fortress that he's just flown a hole into. Once inside, Bucky recoils at the strange and advanced technology that the Nazis apparently possess. With a reference that sharp-eared listeners from last season will appreciate, he asks Cap where the Nazis could have gotten all their Flash Gordon technology. Cap cryptically reveals to Bucky that there are more sides fighting the war than Bucky had probably imagined. Hurried and harried by the assault, the Nazi officers at this advanced station expedite the launch of the rocket. Captain America splits from the effort he's leading to intercept it. He hurls himself onto it and grips tight as it clears the bay. With staunch resolve, he radios to Bucky that he's packing enough explosives to disrupt the rocket while its guidance system is still active. The next couple of pages illustrate the apparently supreme sacrifice made by the daring defender of freedom. We see Captain America plunge into the Arctic as the captions recount his last letter to his fiancée, Gail. The panels go black. Suddenly, it's 2002 in the Himalayas. Fur parkered billionaire industrialist Tony Stark condescends to a lackey about how much vacationing really just makes him want to get back to work. The CEO superhero then instructs his subordinate to cut his butler's vacation short because he's ready to continue with the plan. So, we're left on a note of a billionaire CEO restricting the freedom of his literal servant 
so that at the start of business on Monday, he can implement an agenda of creating a super-powered team to expand and enforce the interests of the United States. An imperial power runs solely for profit. I forgot to mention the second building that Marvel, nay, Timely Comics, occupied. The one right after the McGraw-Hill building. It's pretty apt, I suppose, in a way. For a whole decade, Timely Comics was headquartered in the Empire State Building. Welcome back, faithful listeners. We're thrilled to have you joining us once again. It seems like only yesterday we were laughing, loving, crying, and sighing with our cherished radio announcer, Bud. As I'm sure you're all aware, however, he heard the call of revolutionary action and is left to train in the mountains with the guerrilla climate defender militias we've heard him speak so fondly of. While no one can fill the dead air his absence leaves in our hearts, I hope to bring you the light of the left during this wonderful new season. My name is Joan, and it's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. Before we resume our usual programming of revolutionary content, we have a few people we'd like to thank. Since last season, our cadre has grown quite a bit. We're expressing our deepest appreciation to the following. Mary Lee Rice, J.O.H., John Thomason, Lauren Jones, Corey Lee Smith, Jeffrey Penland, Queer Combatant, David Moses, Excellent Mandible, Mars Hottentot, Walt Llewellyn, David Barajas, Kafka, AJ, or the Black Case Book's very own Nightwing, Coyote Gospel, Crap Factory, and Comrade Food Shovel. We'd like to give a very special shout-out to friend of the show, Better Possible Futures, on Instagram, without whose encyclopedic knowledge of comics and their progressive periphery, this season wouldn't have gotten off the ground. Go ahead and give them a follow for some wonderful deep comics cuts. Thanks again to all who are supporting the show. If you'd like to do so yourself, please navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash collectiveactioncomics. You'll get a shout-out on the show and access to the bonus episodes from last season, as well as the slate of bonus episodes that will complement this season. You can follow the show on Instagram at Collective Action Comics or on Twitter at CA Comics Pod. That's comics with an X. You can leave angry or inspired comments and ratings on Apple Podcasts, or you can send unhinged diatribes to collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com. To be part of a wonderful and supportive community of left-wing comics fans, join our Discord. There's an invite link in the show's link tree on our Instagram and Twitter pages. We thank you for your participation, and as always, we'll hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of... Collective Action Comics! Comics.